podcast series that brings you developments in the Canadian securities industry and potential impacts facing CIBC Mellon clients and institutional investors active in the Canadian market. I'm Joe Lacopo, Vice President, Relationship Management here at CIBC Mellon. Recently, as part of CIBC Mellon's regular update call with our clients, Ash Tabazian, Chief Client Officer at CIBC Mellon, hosted a Q&A with Michael Sager, Executive Director, Multi-Asset and Currency Management, CIBC Asset Management. Michael provided our audience with a macro market analysis, specifically his longer term views on global events and what it may look like for growth and inflation going forward. What follows is a recording of that conversation. Now, next, we are joined by Michael Sager, Executive Director, Multi-Asset and Currency Management at CIBC Asset Management. In this next segment, Michael will provide us with a macro market outlook, particularly with insights around the Russia-Ukraine situation and what it means to portfolio and investment strategy. Michael will also provide us with his longer-term views on what it may look like going forward and some possible scenarios that he will discuss. With that, I will pass it on over to you, Michael. Thanks, Ash. Um, I think it's important to emphasize at the outset of the conversation, of course, that the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine rightly transcends a discussion on economics. And our thoughts at CIBC Asset Management are appropriately with those in the middle of the conflict. So I just want to make that clear as as we we now pivot towards economics and finance, that there are some things that are are more important. And uh, certainly the humanitarian crisis is absolutely one of those. When I listen to discussions on economics, I'm often struck by an important question, which is, why is the speaker telling me this? I mean, it's often important to relate thoughts on economics to actionable ideas for investment portfolios. And I'm not sure that that's something that my fellow economists in the industry always do that well. So you're left with this thought of, so what? What comes next? Well, as you laid out, Ash, in your comments, I'm going to hope today that we do talk to both the economic outlook, but also, as importantly, why that economic outlook matters in terms of our investment portfolios. That's the backdrop that we're we're going to try and cover. Um, If I survey the current economic landscape, we're at a a very interesting but also a very complicated point in the economic cycle. Of course, as I alluded to already, we're experiencing significant geopolitical risk with the conflict in Ukraine, we all have relatively low clarity on how this crisis will resolve. So we really need to think about um, best case outcomes for the global economy and then more difficult uh, outcomes for the global economy. And we we can talk about what those uh, look like. Related to heightened geopolitical risk. We've, of course, seen a significant rise in commodity prices. I think most people focus here on oil, 
perhaps on natural gas too. But the rise in commodity prices has, has largely been across the board. You know, if you look at grains and corn, um, th- those prices have gone up markedly. Um, metals, whether it's industrial metals or gold, I know we've seen a little bit of retracement, but compared to where we were a few months ago, these uh, commodity markets broadly have really uh, experienced sharp increases. And to get to one of the punchlines, you know, whether it's a lack of uh, investment over many, many years or it's supply chain disruption um, with, for example, grain production and exports in Ukraine grinding essentially to a halt for obvious reasons, it seems to us that commodity prices are going to remain um, elevated with a gradual upward bias coming in future months. So, you know, that's going to be an important theme. Another important theme that we, again, as economists, keep trying to relegate to being a, a so-called tail risk, something that's there in the background but is not front and center in terms of decision making. That's, of course, COVID. Whilst things seem to be getting better for the time being in Canada, we're seeing another surge of COVID cases in China and Europe. Um, so you know, we keep trying to relegate it to a low, uh, a background risk for economies and financial markets, but it keeps coming back. So that's an important one. And reflecting all of these issues, all of these risks and issues, We've seen a sharp decline in consumer and business confidence over the past two to three months. I'll get on to another driver of that fall in confidence in a moment when I talk about uh, monetary policy, uh, central bank policy. But despite all of these um, facets, all of these risks that I talked about, current growth is actually holding up pretty well. Uh, particularly in North America and Asia. And global growth is continuing to move forward above trend. Um, So the current situation is still pretty good. And if you look at the Canadian economy, for example, it's recovered very strongly, much better than the U.S. economy. And it's in pretty good shape right now. The key, of course, is what comes next. And here we're clearly entering territory that we haven't encountered for many decades. And there's a couple of facets of uh, that territory. One is an expected weakening in global growth. So growth looks strong right now, partly because of North American uh, reopening, again, that we talked about at the top of the call. Um, But that's not going to last. Um, Growth is expected to weaken. The question is, is it a malignant weakening to a recession or is it a benign weakening to still positive growth rates? Again, to to give the punchline that we can explore a little bit more in the call, our view is that we're going to have a a benign slowdown. We're certainly going to 
put behind us the very strong growth rates that we've seen over the past six to 12 months, something like that. But positive growth um, around about long-term trend seems plausible to us as a base case. The other part of the outlook, of course, is broader and more persistent inflation. And the interplay between growth and inflation is going to be important. The more inflation gains a foothold or an increasing foothold, the more we see a risk to that relatively benign growth outlook. There's a significant interplay also between the resolution to the Ukraine crisis and what happens to growth and inflation, and subsequently what that means for policy and uh, outcomes in investment uh, assets. So, for instance, let's be very positive and assume resolution, a peace treaty, a ceasefire uh, that is sustainable. I would imagine that that leads to a very significant um, improvement in um, risk appetite, in consumer and business sentiment. So that will be very positive. And, it, you know, equity markets will likely bounce as a result. Um, and uh, growth may get another uh, burst of strength over the next three or six months as we put geopolitical risk behind us, were that to happen. But we're in a little bit of a a uh, loop, as it were, because, again, the interplay between growth and inflation is very important. It's clear that the Federal Reserve is behind the curve in terms of solving the inflation conundrum. Uh, that is developing. So were we to get a quick resolution in Ukraine, that would certainly be positive for growth in the short term for equities and risk assets. But it would probably also mean that the Federal Reserve would have to become even more aggressive in terms of the amount of policy tightening that it did. Um, So short term gain for long term pain is probably the likely outcome. So that's why I'm I'm emphasizing that interplay between growth, geopolitical risk, and inflation. Uh, it, as I said, it's clear that the Fed is behind the curve in terms of trying to uh, get control of inflation. Six months ago, we were all talking about inflation as being related to Uh, supply bottlenecks. Since then, uh, the source of inflation has clearly broadened and uh, gained traction in markets. So if you look at wage inflation, for example, it's certainly gaining strength. So that means that inflation is now not just about supply problems. It's also about demand problems, at least Uh, excess demand, at least in North America. And so that's why the Fed has become more aggressive. That's why bond yields have backed up uh, quite markedly 
over the last couple of months in response to the uh, change in rhetoric of the Fed. And now the, it's all eyes on the Fed. Are they able to get the inflation genie back in the bottle without causing a recession? Our base case is that they will be able to. But given the extent of risks, uh, some of which I've already laid out, it's becoming increasingly challenging to deliver that soft landing for uh, the, the U.S., for the Canadian, for the global economy. That's kind of how we're thinking about the global economy. We can dig more into it in a moment. But to get back to my so what point, let's just think what that means for um, asset classes, investment asset classes. And I think it's safe to say that the investment environment is clearly more challenging now and will be for the next 6, 12, 24 months than it has been for the last 12 months. You know, we saw very strong uh, equity market returns, particularly in developed markets over the last uh, uh, year or two. But now we've got headwinds to equities from valuations, which are quite stretched. We've got waning tailwinds because growth is slowing, which means that corporate earnings are weakening. Margins are very strong at the moment and are unlikely to strengthen further, which again is a waning tailwind for equities. So net-net, it looks like uh, a relatively challenging outlook for risky assets, including equities. Um, you know, we can talk about bond markets, which, of course, uh, bond yields, as I mentioned, have backed up quite substantially. And the the, the drawdown in uh, bond markets has been one of the longest and deepest that uh, have been experienced for many, many years, many, many decades. So a challenging economic environment with risks predominantly skewed to uh, the negative, less growth, more inflation, which in turn means that it's a relatively challenging outlook for risk assets, including public equities. Um, of course, there are differentiations between markets, but Ash, I'll, I'll hand it back to you to see if we've got any questions and we can tease out those differentiations between markets as we continue. Hopefully that was useful. No, that was, that was really good. Thank you, Michael. We've had a couple of questions come in, Michael, and uh, let, me, let me just run through them. So uh, you, you, you've laid out a pretty uncertain outlook uh, for equities over the next six months. So should investors be switching over to cash? Yeah, it's a good question, and I think it's um, a top. It's top of a lot of minds. Um, we would argue against that. Um, our perspective at CIBC Asset Management is always that the best way to navigate challenging environments is to maximize the amount of diversification in the portfolio. So you don't want to build portfolios that are exposed to 
only one source of risk or opportunity. So having all of your eggs in a public equity basket doesn't make sense. Uh, um, you know, it felt good last year when the TSX was up by more than 20%, but in more challenging environments, it, it's not a good idea, as we all know. So diversification helps smooth out returns. Um, I really don't recommend cash um, for a couple of reasons. One, you know, if you think about where our long-term um, um, expected money market interest rate is over the next 10 years. We always think about 10 years ahead. Um, it's an appropriately long horizon to um, remove a lot of the short-term volatility from decision-making, but also to not be so long that you can't apply rigorous fundamental analysis to, to come up with a coherent view. So 10 years ahead, what is the expected average money market cash rate in Canada? Well, it's about 1.3% on average. Um, if you think about what the Bank of Canada is targeting in inflation, that's 2%. At the moment, inflation, of course, is significantly above 2%. So the punchline of what I'm telling you is that cash is a negative yielding asset in real terms. So you're locking in a negative return. The second problem with cash, again, re related to its poor expected performance versus particularly equities in the long term, it's really difficult to time participation in markets. It's easy to get out but it's really difficult to get back in. Think about March 2020 when COVID started. Uh, it, it felt like the end of the world if you were an, an equity investor, but within about 20 days, we'd recovered all losses. And it's really difficult to get out and back into a market uh, within 20 days to first avoid losses, and then to maximize gains on the on the recovery side. So don't think cash is a good idea. Diversification uh, certainly is is the best way forward. So perfect. That's a great answer. And that, that was probably one of the most prominent questions. Now, switching gears a little bit, what is the outlook for the Canadian dollar and Canadian equities in the scenarios you just provided? Yeah, and, and uh, that that's a good question, and it, it goes to the point I made at the end of my comments about differentiation across markets. We think um, Canada is relatively well-placed, not only in the short term, but also longer term. So let's start with the longer term. You know, if we think about, again, our um, – uh, expected return framework that we work with in all of our investment solutions at CIBC Asset Management. Again, it focuses on annual expected returns over the next 10 years. We're thinking about for equities, what are current dividend yields? What are the drivers and the strength of the drivers of, of earnings growth? And what do equity valuations look like at the moment. 
And if you go through each one of those building blocks and then add them up, Canada or Canadian equities look relatively attractive. You know, we've got an expected annual return for Canadian equities over the next 10 years, somewhere between 5 and 6%. For U.S. equities in Canadian dollar terms, the comparable number would have a two-handle. So you can see that Canada is, on the long term, is much better placed than, for instance, uh, the U.S. Um, if you think about the the shorter term, you know, the next six months, then again, I think the Canadian equity market is relatively well placed. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier uh, the Canadian economy has has rebounded pretty strongly. Um, it's well set in terms of the drivers of growth. It's a commodity um, economy. As I said earlier, commodity prices, we think, are likely to be strong and strengthening uh, for the foreseeable future. That's good for Canada. You think about the composition of the Canadian equity market, it's skewed towards energy and finance which again is a good place to be at the moment, whereas, for example, the U.S. equity market is skewed towards tech, where um, the long duration of earnings is going to be particularly hampered by rising rates. So Canadian equity is a good place. For similar reasons, the Canadian dollar is in a good place. It's a commodity currency. It's supported by relatively strong economic fundamentals. So, you know, in a challenging environment, we're pretty optimistic about the outlook for uh, Canada and Canadian assets. Excellent. Excellent. We've got time for one other question, Michael, which I think you've addressed it. But traditionally in these risk events, emerging markets have often struggled. Now, we talked about the Canada, the, the U.S. and European markets. What is the outlook this time around uh, around emerging market economics and market slash and those asset classes? Yeah, and, and again, I think this is really top of mind. Um, the, the punchline is that we, uh, again, you have to differentiate. Uh, and that's, you know, that's been a, a, a word that I've repeated a few times. Um, there are. There are vulnerable emerging market um, countries and asset classes that we wouldn't consider to be attractive investments. Turkey would be a good example, for instance. But there are also relatively attractive emerging markets. And if we, if we zero in on those attractive markets, they, uh, they offer a lot of potential, uh, including versus developed markets. So, you know, just in one minute flat, if I think about, you know, 15 years ago or before that in the global financial crisis, emerging market fundamentals were very weak. Emerging markets really struggled. Whenever a crisis came, wherever its source, emerging markets as a block would fall over. This time around, Fundamentals for the better emerging markets have significantly improved. You know, debt levels are low compared to developed markets. Balance of payments are strong. 
valuations are very attractive in emerging market equities. For example, last year, uh, when the TSX printed a return over 20%, MSCI emerging market actually reported a single-digit negative return. So that suggests that valuations are uh, ready and uh, to go for the long term. Fundamentals are attractive. So as a long-term proposition, um, once you've identified the most attractive EM markets, I think they should be an increasing component of um, uh, investment portfolios. Thank you for listening to CIBC Mellon Industry Perspectives. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. For more information about our client update calls, contact your CIBC Mellon Relationship Manager. For more information, including CIBC Mellon's latest knowledge leadership on issues relevant to institutional investors active in Canada, visit cibcmellon.com.